The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in chapter 18 and the first four verses. The first four verses in the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now we've been on a number of Sunday evenings in succession, looking at the teaching of the Bible in the light of the whole state and condition of mankind and the world at this present critical and difficult and serious hour in the history of the human race. We are in a world of tension. We are in a world of alarm. We are in a world of uncertainty. We are in a world faced by possible, almost incredible horror, faced with the possibility, according to some learned authorities, that we may indeed actually be living in the very last days of civilization and of uh, the story of mankind on the face of this globe. And, of course, the question that naturally puts itself to us and which we've been considering, to which we've been addressing ourselves, is this. Why is all this? What produces it? What can we do about it? Is there any comfort for us? Is there any consolation? Is there any hope? Is there any message that really can give us something to hold on to, something on which to rest our weary soul? Now, that's been our investigation. And we've tried to put it like this. That the greatest tragedy of all at the present time is the fact that men and women in this awful predicament refuse to listen to the message of this book. For here is the only answer. We've examined some of the other proffered remedies. We've seen how hollow they are and how they always lead to disappointment in spite of the confidence with which they have been put forward in the past. The world tonight is hopeless. It's more or less admitting it at last. But here's the trouble. Though it is hopeless and bankrupt, it will not consider the message of this book. Therefore, to me, this is the problem, the most urgent problem of all. Why is it that men and women will not listen to this? And we are examining these various reasons. And we've brought it down to this. That ultimately men's troubles all arise from one cause, and that is his wrong view of himself. That's men's essential difficulty. And because he's wrong about himself, this central matter, he obviously goes wrong everywhere else. Now, we came to this point last Sunday night. We saw that men, instead of being concerned about his soul and his relationship to God, he is practically quite unconcerned about that altogether and is tremendously concerned and preoccupied about his body and his existence in this passing world of time. Now there, I was suggesting, is man's most essential trouble. He doesn't realize that he's got a soul. His view of himself is so inadequate, so unworthy, so incomplete. He leaves out the greatest thing, the highest thing, in himself. And because he's got this essentially wrong view of himself, and his whole being... Well, obviously, he therefore addresses himself to the wrong questions, to the wrong problems, and thereby simply increases his own confusion and his own sense of alarm. Very well. Here, then, uh, we see is the primary thing. Man must be concerned about his soul, about his eternal destiny, and above all, about his relationship to God. But, and here again, we find a continuation of the same uh, element of tragedy. Even when man comes to the point of considering this, he still tends to go wrong. 
The fact is, as I'm saying, that men's whole outlook is wrong. The trouble with modern men, with any man who's not a Christian, is not that he's wrong here and there and in various other particular respects. According to the Bible, it is his whole outlook that's wrong. He's wrong everywhere. And indeed, of course, this must follow of necessity. The Bible starts at the center always. It doesn't deal with things on the periphery. It starts at the center. Uh, it puts it like this, that uh, if the well, it says, if the spring, the fountain out of which the water comes is polluted, well, you're more or less wasting your time in applying chemicals to the stream that comes out of it. You must go back to the source. And this is the source, the soul of man and its relationship to the eternal God. Now, men, I say, being wrong there at the center goes wrong everywhere. Even when you bring him to this matter of the need of his soul, his need of a knowledge of God, his need, if you like, to use the language of my text this evening, of belonging to the kingdom of heaven. He goes wrong there as he goes wrong everywhere else. Now, this is the subject to which we pay attention this evening. That's the subject which is dealt with here by our Lord in this incident that is recorded here at the beginning of this 18th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and particularly in our Lord's words. He puts his finger, as ever, upon man's essential trouble. What is it? Well, it is, of course, nothing but his fatal self-confidence. That's man's main trouble. We've been seeing it, in a sense, as we've been proceeding from Sunday to Sunday. But here, we're brought face to face with it. It is the central and the most essential matter in this particular subject that is put before us here. Now look at it. Here are these disciples of all people. These men who are following our Lord daily, listening to his teaching, observing him, his prayer life, seeing his reaction to the various vicissitudes of life, having this unusual privilege of being at close quarters in the very presence of the Son of God, and seeing his miracles and everything, and hearing especially this great teaching of his about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But notice, notice the question they put. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That was the thing they were after. And thereby, of course, they reveal their whole state and condition. And our Lord deals with them in a very drastic manner. What he did was to take hold of a little child, called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted, except you turn, except you become something absolutely different from what you are, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoso therefore shall humble, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child. The same, that's the man, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now then, here you see our Lord, I say, is exposing the whole fallacy and tragedy of their position. Their whole notion of the kingdom of God is wrong. And still more wrong is their view of themselves and their own capacity with respect to that kingdom. What they're interested in, which of them is to be the greatest in it? The thing is almost incredible, but nevertheless, it did happen. And it is because this is still the main trouble with men outside Christ and his kingdom that I'm calling your attention to this matter. That this should be true at a time like this is almost incredible, isn't it? But is it not the fact? Is it not the case? With the world collapsing round and about us, with the world as it is this evening, the most amazing and astonishing thing to me is man's extraordinary self-confidence still. His belief in himself and in his own capacity. That it should be possible for him to be like this with the world as it is, I say almost passes one's comprehension. Nevertheless, it is the truth. And this, as our Lord shows us here, is the supreme obstacle to man's turning to the gospel. Here's the answer. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the reign of Christ, the rule of the Son of God. If only this came in, if only men all submitted to him, our problems would already have vanished. 
There'd be no problem, there'd be no tension, there'd be no fear of war, no fear of the bombs, no fear of anything, and our moral problems would be solved if only all belonged to the kingdom of heaven and bowed before him as the king, the glorious king. But this, I say, is the main obstacle. He can't enter this kingdom. Why? Well, because of this wrong, this fatally wrong attitude uh, towards themselves. This has always been the greatest obstacle to men and women believing this gospel. I'm talking not only generally about the world, I'm talking about individuals. I'm going to deal tonight not only with the state of the world, but with the state of every one of us. Man is a sort of microcosm. The world's the macrocosm. What's true of the world is true of every one of us. The world is made up of individuals like ourselves. So individually and collectively, the world is in trouble. The world is in a state of failure because of this fatally wrong view of itself and of the kingdom of God. Now you can see this at a glance. It's very obvious in the modern world, isn't it? Modern men, in all his thinking and in all the teaching which he likes most of all, is being encouraged in the exact opposite direction. The world would have us believe in ourselves, trust in ourselves, have confidence in ourselves, Express ourselves. Isn't that the attitude all along the line? We are not to be interfered with by anybody. Morality is one's own personal private business. That's the argument, isn't it? That's the argument of the hour. Very well then, don't listen to this Victorianism, this old book and all this past. You have a right to your own life. And you have a right to do what you want to do. Why shouldn't you? Why should any authorities, college authorities or anybody else, interfere with what you want to do? It's your own private business. And if you like doing these things, well, do them. If you want to, well, why not? Assert yourself. Express yourself. That's the world's teaching. This is its psychology. Boosting ourselves up. Persuading ourselves that we have a right to these things and that we are capable of handling ourselves and our own personal affairs and the affairs of the whole world. That man's got it in him to make a perfect life for himself and for the whole world. Isn't that the teaching? Never has man believed so much in himself as he does at the present time. And here I say, if it were not tragic, it would be really the greatest joke in the whole universe. That man, with his world as a shambles round and about him, is still building up himself. His self-esteem, his self-confidence, his assurance, and his belief that he has a right to assert himself. And in so doing, he will bring order out of the chaos. Now, that's the teaching. It's not surprising that it doesn't turn to the Bible. It's not surprising that it doesn't listen to the Son of God. It's not surprising that it doesn't pay attention to the teaching of this gospel. For this teaches the exact opposite. There isn't a greater antithesis. You can't imagine anything so far removed from the belief and the philosophy of modern men than the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at this point. He says, if you want to enter my kingdom, if you want to know the life of God, if you want to master life and conquer it, you've got to turn right round. You've got to turn. You've got to be converted. And far from believing in yourself as you do, you've got to become as little children. Now, here is the contrast once more. You see, the gospel is a complete contrast to everything that modern men believes in. And there's no compromise between these things. They're blank contradiction. They're poles apart. This notion, which is so current today, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the kingdom of God, is just some kind of addition to what men think and do, and that men who proclaim that they're not Christians are nevertheless representing Christianity in the modern world is just the greatest bit of confusion that is conceivable. These things are poles apart. They're worlds apart. I'm almost tempted to say that they are eternities apart. Very well. There is the message. If men individually or collectively is to know deliverance, if you and I tonight are longing to be in a position in which we are ready for whatever may come, come bombs, come war, come the end, come anything, if we want to be more than conquerors. Well, there's only one way for it. We must enter into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of heaven. 
Very well, how do we do so? Well, the answer is, we've got to do a great deal of turning. There's got to be a great difference in us. In what respects? Well, I've tried to summarize them like this. Man is going to turn in the first place from his reluctance to admit his failure. Here's the first thing. It's inevitable from what I've been saying. There is nothing that men by nature more objects to than to have to admit that he's been wrong or that he's a failure. I say modern men, he won't do it. He won't do it even with respect to the world. He won't do it with respect to himself. This is the thing that he hates above everything else, but it's the first thing in connection with the gospel. It's the first thing you come up against when you're on the road that is facing the door of entry into the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. There it is immediately. You see, you face a great placard, and that's what it says to you. The failure's only here. But man doesn't like to admit that he's a failure. He's the 20th century man. He's proud of his achievements. The world's never been so wonderful. Look at all his developments. Look at all he succeeded in doing. Success! And yet he's confronted by the call to a confession of failure. This has always been the stumbling block with regard to this gospel. It was the thing, of course, that made the Pharisees and scribes hate our Lord and Savior. It was because he was convincing and convicting them of failure. They who were the teachers of the people. They who prided themselves on their morality and their goodness and their religion. He was getting them to, com to, com to, to confess their, their failures and their faults. And they hated him for it. There is nothing, I say, that is so difficult for men as to admit that he is a failure. And yet there's no hope for him until he does. He's got to start by admitting that he's gone wrong, that he's in trouble, that he's a failure, a helpless failure. Now I say he evades this, he avoids this, he does everything he can not to do it. How does he do it? Well, the modern man does it in much the same way as man has always done it. There are many wonderful examples of this in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New. Man doesn't change. And modern man is Avoiding and evading this charge of failure as men has been doing throughout the running centuries. Sometimes he does it like this by saying quite bluntly that there is no failure at all. How does he do that? Well, he does that as these Pharisees used to do it that we read so much of in the pages of the four Gospels. How was it you think the Pharisees persuaded themselves that they were not failures but that they were great successes? They, after all, had got the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the moral law. They had that, and they were teaching it, and yet they persuaded themselves that they were sinless, that they were perfect, and that there was nothing wrong with them, and that their lives were great successes. How did they do it? Well, you remember their method. It's an old dodge, this. What you do, you see, is to read what you think into the law. You don't take it as it is. You put your own gloss upon it. You put your own interpretation. And the Pharisees and scribes have done this. They have reduced the moral demands of God to something that was within their own competence. And thereby they said, we've kept the law. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus, you see, had been doing this. He admits that in that bit of autobiography that I read to you just now out of the third chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. He says that once upon a time, before I was a Christian, I, I thought I was blameless. I thought I'd kept the law fully. How did they do it? Well, you see, they did it like this. They didn't take the law as it was. They didn't take its spirit especially. But they were able to, by a kind of process of casuistry, they were able to evade its demands. Uh, they could get out of it all. Here was one way, as our Lord was so fond of convicting them. They ignored the spirit altogether. They said that as long as a man hadn't literally murdered another man, that he was not guilty of murder. But our Lord taught that the law says much more than that. That if a man says in his heart about his brother, thou fool, he's already murdered him in his heart. The Pharisees again said that unless a man has literally, actually committed an act of adultery, he's not an adulterer. Wait a minute, says Christ. Any man who looks on a woman to lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's an adulterer. 
in the sight of God. Now, you see, that was part of their method. They uh, reduced it all to just something that they were already doing. They said, this is the law, we are keeping it, we are perfect. Where do you talk about failure? They persuaded themselves that all was well. That was one of their methods. Another one was this, I'm not going to stay with this. Another was, as the apostle again teaches in the second chapter of his epistle to the Romans, they were allowing the mere fact that they had the law to persuade themselves that they kept it. So Paul says, not the hearers of the law are right, but the doers. But this is what they were doing. They said, we as Jews have got the law of God. Those Gentiles haven't. They're dogs. They're lost. They're damned. We are Jews. We've got the law of God. Yes, says Paul, but the question is, are you keeping it? The mere possession of the law doesn't help you. The question is, are you carrying it out? Are you putting it into practice? But here, merely because they knew the law and were aware of some of its contents, they made that due duty for the fact that they were keeping it. There are many people like that. There are many people who lull their consciences to sleep by reading books about morality and ethics. And because they are well versed in certain uh, statements about morality and ethics, they are perfectly happy. They are interested ethically and morally. And they pay no attention to the life which they are living. Now that's one method, not to admit it at all. Another way, of course, is to make light of it. And to say, well, of course, I'm not 100% saint. I wouldn't like to say that I'm absolutely perfect. And that somehow therefore covers all your blemishes and all your sins. Not realizing that the teaching here is that if a man fails in one point of the law, he has failed in the whole law. But thus, we glide lightly over it. Not absolutely perfect, but it's all right as it were. Thus, I say, we evade this issue. Another way is to blame circumstances. Trouble is, we are never given a chance of God. It's always other people. This country is all right. People like the Kaiser and Hitler and Stalin and Khrushchev. We are never wrong. It's always some other nation. Isn't that it? And it's like that in individual practice. Nothing wrong with us. It's always somebody else who's doing something wrong. If only we were given peace and left alone, why, we'd be perfect and there'd be never be anything wrong. But the tragedy is, of course, that all the others are saying exactly the same thing. Thus, we all do this at the same time. And we are evading the issue. And we are avoiding the confession of failure. Then, of course, there are many other ways. We're all experts at rationalizing our sins. What does that mean? Well, explaining them away. Pointing out that there was a reason for what we did and so on. This uh, takes most commonly this form. That we're all very great experts at excusing in ourselves what we condemn in others. The Apostle Paul has said all about this again in that same second chapter of his epistle to the Romans. He said, the meanwhile, we are accusing and excusing. We condemn in another man the very thing we can explain away when we do it. Thus, you see, we are always avoiding the charge of failing. We can always work up the accounts at the end of the year. They're balanced just right. We are experts at rationalizing ourselves. So I sum it up by putting it like this. There's nothing men so hates as to face himself and to examine himself. He does this, of course, by talking about generalities, as I've often pointed out to you. Many a man tonight is very concerned, you see, about what's happening in South Africa, what's happening in the international sphere, what the government is doing. He's condemning scientists and condemning statesmen. Yes, and while he's doing that, he's not facing himself. He's not facing his own life. He's not facing the failure in his own life. He's not seeing that the whole world is just a repetition of himself, himself multiplied and writ large. This is how man does it. And he not only refuses to examine himself, he, re he resents any message that makes him face himself. That's why he doesn't like this gospel. He always likes books on general philosophy or ethics. Something far removed. But he doesn't like this book because this book always brings him back to himself. This is a book that says the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. But it makes a man come back to his own doorstep. It asks him, not what do you think about the way the statesmen are behaving. It asks him this, what are you doing? What are you doing in your personal life? What is your own position? It brings it right back to this personal issue and tells a man he's got to enter through a straight gate onto a narrow road and man dislikes it and objects it. He feels it's narrow and personal and selfish. Well, now, these are some of the ways in which man shows his reluctance 
to admit his own sin. Thus he says that he's always right and everybody else wrong. But my dear friends, isn't it about time that we face the facts? What about our own lives? What right are we to expect the world to be different while we are what we are? What's the use of expecting peace between nations if you're not talking to your neighbor, perhaps not even talking to certain members of your own family? What's the point of talking in general when you're failing yourself and in the particular? Now, isn't it time, I say, we became honest and we stopped for a moment? Let's stop delivering great pronouncements about generalities. Let's start with ourselves. Let's face ourselves. Let's examine ourselves. Let's look at our lives. What have we done with it? What about the soul? What about your chastity, your purity, your honesty, your integrity? These are the questions. Let's sit down and examine ourselves and look at ourselves honestly in the mirror of God's word and God's holy truth. And then we'll begin to see something of the fair. You've got to turn, says Christ. You've got to leave your whole mentality and way of thinking. And before you begin to ask who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom, you've got to see yourself as you are. Let us all then hear and heed his great word this evening. Let's turn ourselves. Let's honestly examine ourselves. Let's admit our failure one by one and the failure of the whole world face to face with a holy God. Now there's the first thing. But let me call your attention to a second way in which men shows the need of being turned in this way. A second way in which men shows that nothing less but some radical transformation is adequate to his condition. The second thing, the second respect, therefore, in which he needs to turn is this. He must turn not only from his reluctance to admit his failure, he must turn from his overweening self-confidence. Here it is, we see it in the disciples' question. They actually go up to our Lord and say, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's the person we are after. That's what we are interested in. Want to get right to the very top. Who gets there? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, I say the thing almost passes comprehension, but here it is. They, they, they actually did this thing. And thereby, I say, they display this overweening self-confidence and assurance, which is so characteristic of men. Here again, cause was the most outstanding characteristic of those Pharisees and scribes. The disciples are guilty of it. Pharisees and scribes are men. All men by nature are guilty of exactly the same thing. And it is because this is so prominent and evident in this modern world that I call your attention to it. The world is not only full of self-righteousness, it is full of self-confidence. Listen to the self-righteousness as men would give you the impression that they alone are right and are condemning wholesale, as I say, the scientist and the statesman, the awful self-righteousness of it all, as if they alone know how to live and how to behave. Well, that's always characteristic of men in sin. But then with that goes this self-confidence. And look at it in modern men. He seems to think that he understands all about the kingdom of God, but it's quite simple. There's only one thing to do, he talks glibly and easily about following Jesus Christ, imitating Christ, putting Christ's teaching into daily practice. That's all that's necessary to say. All the problems could be solved. If only men borrowed this teaching and put this into practice, they're not interested in the person of Christ, of course. They're not interested in his dogma, not interested in his death and resurrection, but this ethical, simple teaching. Here they say, we are really bringing in what he calls the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And you see, they're confident that they can do this. They can apply the teaching of the kingdom of God. It's so simple. They're confident that they themselves can do it. They don't hesitate to talk about imitating Christ. There's no difficulty to them at all. Like these disciples felt, the, the one thing to know is how to get to the top in the kingdom. These men uh, seem to be able to get to the top without any difficulty whatsoever. They think that by doing these things, they make themselves Christian. This is, they say, what makes a man a Christian. If he only objects to a certain thing and follows a certain practice, he is automatically a Christian. 
And what they betray by all this, as the disciples did, is a complete and entire failure to understand the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. They display nothing but a colossal ignorance of the nature of the kingdom of God and of heaven. They think it's something within their own competence, something they can do. They can enter and come to the top. And they're fully persuaded that they can do it. But here again comes this word from the lips of Christ to them. You need to be turned. He takes a little child and puts him in the midst of them. And he says, look here, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Any teaching that gives you the impression that it's an easy thing to be a Christian, that it's an easy thing to follow Christ and imitate him, an easy thing to put Christian teaching into practice, that all you've got to do is to decide to do it, and you do just do one or two things and it's all done. It's a denial of the teaching. He's never seen the profundity, the largeness of it all, and all that it demands and all that it calls for. Men, I say, must be turned again utterly and absolutely and completely before he has any hope of entering into this glorious kingdom. And that brings me to my third and my last general heading, which is this. Except ye turn and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. What else have I got to do? I've got to admit my failure. I've got to get rid of this fatal self-confidence. Well, let me put it like this. I've got to recognize my utter inability. My complete helplessness. That's, after all, the main characteristic of the child. That's why our Lord took the child and set him in the midst. You'll find comparable teaching from our Lord when they brought infants to him. And he took the infants in his arms in their utter helplessness. He says, of such, this is the quality that is essential before anyone can belong to the kingdom of God. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is most important for this reason. That there are people, you see, who have tried to evade this teaching by saying that, after all, the great characteristic of a little child is curiosity. And that therefore what our Lord is teaching here is this, that all we need is curiosity. But an infant is not curious. The infants in arms have no curiosity. That's not the great characteristic. The characteristic is complete helplessness. Complete dependence upon others, upon the mother and the father, to carry them, to feed them, to clothe them, to do everything for them. It's complete helplessness. It is utter inability. That's the quality that our Lord is emphasizing. He takes the child, puts him in the middle. Here are men, you see, who feel confident. Who's going to be greatest? Tell us, what's the way? We're ready for it. We're in the competition. Oh, says our Lord. You don't understand. You're all wrong in your thinking and in your conception concerning this kingdom. You've got to turn right about. You've got to go down. You've got to humble yourself as this little child. You've got to become completely helpless. You've got to realize you have total inability to do anything about this kingdom. Oh, here's the rub. Here's the difficult. Fancy saying this to a modern man who masters science who's an expert at the arts, who passes acts of parliament, who believes he really can legislate in the kingdom of God, that he can do it. That's why he hasn't been believing in God. That's why he rejects a supernatural gospel and salvation. Man's got the competence, he's got the ability. He believes he can. Here comes the word of our Lord in his face and says, you can't. You've got to turn, you've got to become humble and helpless and acknowledge it like this little child. Now, in what respects has men got to do this? Well, let me just know two or three of them. These, my dear friends, are the absolutes in connection with entering into this kingdom. Are you enjoying the peace of God that passeth all understanding tonight? How are you reacting to the world as it is? Are you ready to face death? Are you ready for the coming and the exploding of these bombs, if that should happen? Tell me, how are you standing up to it all? There is a way, according to this teaching, in which a man can be at perfect rest, come what may. But it's this way, and you enter it on its own conditions. You've got to become as a little child. How? Well, in these ways. 
A man's got to come to see that he can't change himself. He can't change his nature. He can't make himself as a little child. He can't decide to become humble. Have you ever tried it? Well, if you have, you'll find that you'll be prouder at the end than you were at the beginning. That's what many men who tried this way of going into a cell or into or becoming monks or hermits or anchorites, they were going there to humble themselves. They've often admitted and confessed in their journals that they were filled with pride and self-righteousness, proud of the fact they'd left the world in order to do it, and so on, and of their virtue. The more you try, the more you see yourself, and you're proud of this damned self. But let me put it in a still more practical way. What man needs, I say, before he can be a citizen of this kingdom and enjoy this peace, is something like this. He's got to change this nature that's inside him. Well, what's wrong with that, you say? Well, what's wrong with it is this. That as he is by nature, he loves the darkness. And he hates the light. Now, our Lord said that. He said, this is the condemnation. That men love darkness and hate the light. Because their deeds were evil. And men does, by nature, love the darkness. We've all been born with that nature. And we've all loved the darkness. There was a special attraction about prohibited fruit. There was always something unusually enticing upon that which is wrong and evil. Why do men live the life they do? Because they like it. They love it. That's the cause of the moral breakdown today. It isn't a question of education. It's a question of the heart. Why are men doing these things? They suffer for it and they cause suffering to others. Why do they do it? There's only one answer. They like it. They love it. They love the darkness. And so, you see, they try to rationalize it, as I've been telling you. They say, after all, I made a mistake. Should I be held by that mistake? That doesn't, doesn't matter that my little children are going to suffer. I must have another chance. And the little children are heartbroken. And the family is divided. And all sorts of psychological problems are raised. Why do men do this? Why this cruelty? And not only men, but also women, mothers. Why do they do it? Oh, it's because they love the darkness. They love the illicit. They like it. Now, that's the nature that's in men. We're, we, we were all born with that nature. It's a nature that loves the darkness and hates the light. Instead of loving the light and hating the darkness. And do what you will, you can't get rid of them. Now, here is the way in which a man comes to see his own inability. Of course, how easy it is for me to talk about what governments are doing and to condemn them in righteous indignation. Yes, but you see, my real problem is... Why am I in another way doing the same sort of thing? One nation, we, we are told on our side of the curtain, that the other people want to conquer the whole world. They have no right to it. We say they're very wrong, and this must be stopped. It's wrong. Yes, but you see, there's no difference in principle between that and another man looking at another man's wife and saying, I'd like to have that woman, I'm going to have that woman. But of course he won't face that. He's talking about countries, nations. But we've got to come back. Can you change your own nature? Can the leopard... Uh, Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots try and do it my friend not only that let me put it to you like this can you master the things within you that get you down now there's a classical statement about this you're aware of it in the seventh chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans he's put it there once and forever here's the problem I'm a contradiction he says I'm in a muddle here he is he's been enlightened by the law of God and this is the position in which he finds himself. He says, That which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that, I would not. I consent to the law that it is good. I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. How does he know that? Well, he says, For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. I don't know how to do it. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And then he comes to this conclusion. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God at the, after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. You know about that, my friend, don't you? 
You know about your resolves and resolutions. Why don't you carry them out? You know what is right and you say, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be like that. Why aren't you like that? The answer is, there's this law in your members. There's other law. And it's stronger than your resolution. It's stronger than what you like and what you believe. It gets you down. There's a nature within you that is evil and foul. And it masters you. And it gets you down. And you go from remorse to remorse. And from agony to agony. And you cry out at last saying, Oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me? Man can't change his own nature. He can't stop doing evil. He can't start doing good. He can't master these other elements that are in his own nature. He's got to admit that. He's got to admit his inability. What's the use of talking about making a perfect world? What's the talk of, uh, use of talking about application of philosophy and using reason when man has got all this conflict which is ever defeating him and bringing him into captivity to the law that is in his members? He can't do that. But then there's something else which he can't do. Even if he could master himself and these forces that are latent within him and asserting themselves so constantly, He's equally helpless to master the forces of evil that are in the world round and about him. Because, you see, our problem is not only with ourselves. The whole world is against us. Look at it tonight. Everything to discourage a man to, to be moral and clean and pure and holy, it's all against him. It's all there. The world, the flesh, the devil. Ah, oh, the world and its mind and its outlook. You've got to fight it. You've got to battle with it. Can you do it? Are you succeeding? Are you talking about your ability? Are you talking about your competence? About your might? Face to face with the world that's shouting at you in its newspapers, in its television sets, in its cinema, it's everywhere, in its pornography, in the books and the bookstores, in the pictures. Everything is here militating against you, getting you down. And it does get us down. Isn't this human nature? Isn't this experience? And yet man talks about his competence and about his ability. He can not only master himself, he can't master the forces of evil and of sin that are in the world round and about him. But over and above all this, why is it that man doesn't see his complete and utter inability and helplessness in the matter of pleasing God and fitting himself to stand in the presence of God. For that is the ultimate question. It isn't merely self-control. It isn't merely living, conquering the world and all that is against me. My ultimate task is this, to stand before God, to look into the face of God, to meet the demands of God. It always comes to this. Our problem is not to face men. We can do that. We can explain to men. We are experts, as I say, at rationalizing. But my friend, you and I have got to stand before God. And are you still believing that you are competent to fit yourself to stand in the presence of God and in his holy atmosphere in which he dwells in that light that is unapproachable? Man doesn't realize what he's got to face. It's because of his ignorance of God that men's self-confident. It's because he knows nothing about the kingdom of God that he believes that he can enter in and get to the top in it without any difficulty as these foolish disciples did. But let me show you some of the things you've got to conform to before you can stand in the presence of God and be fit to look into his face. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 15. Lord, he asks, who shall abide in thy tabernacle and who shall dwell in thy holy hill? That's it. And here's the answer. He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Can you do it? Have you done it? Do you think that by applying your mind and reason and will, you can succeed in doing it? Those are the conditions. But listen again. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? That's it. Lord, who shall be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? How can we live this righteous, holy life that is pleasing to God and that will put us and the world in order? Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? And here's the answer. He that hath clean hands. All right, I'll start washing them. I'll start purifying them. 
I'll get all the soaps and the medicaments. I'll get rid of every stain and every mark of pollution, everything unclean I've ever touched in the world. Well, you start along that line. You'll spend the rest of your life washing your hands, my friend. And still they'll be soiled at the end. But wait, I haven't finished. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Even if you could clean your hands, it wouldn't be enough. You've got to cleanse your heart. God knoweth the heart. God readeth the heart of men. He doesn't look on the externals. He looks within. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He wants a pure heart. No evil imagination. No ugly wrong thought. No sinning in your mind when you haven't got enough courage to do it in practice. Pure heart. Nothing wrong or evil or foul having any place or any lodgment in any crevasse anywhere in your heart. Pure heart. Who hath not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. My friend, can you do it? How easy to talk about legislating in the kingdom of God. How easy to talk about imitating Christ. That his heart was pure. It was clean. He never lifted up his heart to vanity. There was never anything unrighteous in him. Listen to David again in Psalm 51. He saw the whole thing. Behold, he says, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. David had committed a grievous sin. He knew that God had forgiven him in his grace and love and kindness and compassion. But David is not content with merely having forgiveness. He says, I don't want to go on doing this sort of thing. He'd been responsible for a man's murder in order that he might have his wife. He'd already committed adultery with her. He knew he was forgiven. But David said, I want to stop doing this sort of thing. I do. I want to have a heart that will be rid of this. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. He says, there's only one way for it. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I can't do it. Wash me with hyssop. Wash me, cleanse me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He can't do it. The demands of God are entirely beyond him. And then listen again to Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? If God marks every iniquity, every failure, every transgression, who shall stand? There's nobody. We are all lost. The whole world lieth guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Here, my friend, is the task. Here is the standard. It's not just being a little bit moral and nice and good and protesting against bombs and therefore you're perfect if you do that and you're a great Christian. No, no, it's meeting God in his utter absolute holiness and our God is a consuming fire. He is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here's the task. If we say, says John, that we have no sin, we lie, we deceive ourselves, and we know not the truth. Oh, my dear friend, once you face this standard, of course you're bound to come to the same conclusion as this great apostle came to. Did you notice it in that reading at the beginning? He says, what things were gained to me? What were they? Well, being a Jew, being circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, a moral man, a good man, a religious man, a Jew, the chosen people of God, always went to his synagogue, his place of worship, a perfect man, he thought. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as but dung, refuge, a manure heap, all my righteousness, filthy, dung, refuge, utterly useless. That's what men has got to come to see. That's why men has got to turn and to become utterly different. Realizing the truth about himself and his own nature, realizing the truth about God and the nature of God and the demands of God, he must come to see his utter helplessness and to cry out, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? I can't deliver myself. I'm completely helpless. This law in my members damns everything, nullifies all my efforts. I can't. 
Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? He's become a little child. He admits his complete failure. He's lost all his self-confidence. He knows that he's totally unable, completely incapable of standing before God, of being sufficiently righteous to enter the kingdom of God under heaven and to be ready for that bliss that God has awaiting for all his people. Oh, it is only those who realize that they're lost and helpless and forlorn and hopeless. It is only such who enter the kingdom of God, those who realize they can do nothing and who cry out in their agony, Save me! Thou must save, and thou alone! Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Helpless look to thee, for grace, and all the rest of it, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, ere I die. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. And there in his helplessness, he's ready to look at the Son of God, who says, the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost, and to believe that he's done so, not only by living his perfect life as man in the flesh, but above all by taking the sin and the guilt of men and all the shame upon himself, and bearing its punishment on the cross on Calvary's hill, dying that we might be forgiven, Conquering death and the grave, rising again to justify us, seated at the right hand of God to intercede for us. He is the Savior. He alone can save us in our utter helplessness and hopelessness. Except he turn, except he be converted, and become absolutely different from what you are, and as little children. And in your helplessness, Look into his face and say, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. And the moment you say that, you've entered the kingdom. You become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And all the promises of God now apply to you. He will keep you in life. He will keep you in death. And whatever may come to meet you, you can know the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Have you become as a little child? Have you turned? Have you humbled yourself? Have you cast yourself in your helplessness unreservedly upon the love and the grace and the mercy of God? In Christ Jesus. Do it now. While there is still time. Do it now.